Lord, there's a sense of humbleness and awe as we come to texts like a Revelation 4 where the author tries in human way the best he can to tell us of the glory and the greatness and the grandeur of our God. And so um, help us as we began looking last week and then we'll look this week again to behold our God, to be strengthened, to be humbled, to stand in awe and rejoice that the sovereign creator God stands so majestic and above all and at the same time um, is our father cares for us as his children and um, so Lord we look forward to hearing from Revelation 4 might you strengthen Adam uh, might he be able to uh, with spirit empowerment and a human tongue to uh, proclaim to us the best he can the glory of God and then give us ears to hear uh, that we would receive the word Lord, might we be strengthened and might you be glorified and honored. And it's in Jesus Christ's name that we pray. Amen. One author writes about the church's condition. Uh, presently, as he's looking across uh, evangelical churches, he writes this about its people. People are starving for the greatness of God. But most of them would not give this diagnosis of their own troubled lives. So as we come this morning, as I was reading that and instructed my own soul to put this text into perspective for us, is that we would come to this text to receive it. Is this how we would diagnose our need this morning? Impatience. Lovelessness. Faithlessness. Treasuring God's gifts, losing perspective over God who gave them. Use of our time, the discipline within family, industry, ethic at our workplace. The various challenges that we all face at various times throughout the course of our week. When you come in this morning, what is it that you're eager to hear? What is it that you sense about this struggle that indeed as saints you hate? And you want to be set free. You, you want to slay that which so easily entangles. This is, I know you, your heart's desire this morning. We all desire that by the grace of the Lord. So we gather as a body to be together for the next four hours. And, and what, what is that that we're anticipating? And we say, I want the, my heart to be warmed and the callous to be burned off. I want to be moved to fight sin that so easily entangles me. And then you said, this is how it'll be done. How? What is the diagnosis of how it'll be done? He continues this way. Majesty of God 
is an unknown cure. So the saints aren't diagnosing. This is what I need. I need this morning, Pastor, at, they got me a little late, not quite, 10.49 a.m. At 10.49, this is what I need. I need to hear, in light of this constant struggle for me, I need to hear the majesty of God. This is what I need. This is what each of us need. Or is it to us, as we came in, an unknown cure? I think I need something else. He continues this way. There are far more popular prescriptions on the church's market. Far more easily listened to applications. But the benefit of any other remedy is brief and shallow to the soul. I just want to come, I want to hear this one key that then I can take with me and begin unlocking all the doors. I just want to just, you know, wrap it in a small package and then hand it. We need something more than that. Lest it be so brief and shallow that by the time we get home, it's gone. What will last? What can we engage in for the next hour to help us engage the battle of sin and overcome? He goes this way by introduction. Our greatest need, as we walk through the wilderness of this present age, is to see what the Apostle John saw on the Isle of Patmos. We, the church, need to see afresh a glimpse of the glory of God. A glimpse of what John saw. That is the cure to each of us this morning. Just a glimpse. Will you go with me together as a community gathered? Will you go with me to just meditate? Will you give your heart to this text with me this morning? That Will you hear from me that there's not something else you need to hear right now? And go with me into the vision of what John has seen, has written by way of inspiration without error. And by faith trust, that is the cure that you need for your impatience. The cure you need for your lust. I'm trusting that you're going with me. You believe that by faith. This is the church's cure. The greatness of God. Let us go to Revelation 4. As has been read this morning. As we will go forward. As indeed this is the cure for all of our sin.
This is what will empower that we might wage war against that which so easily entangles us. Give us, once again, heavenly perspective as we saw last week there in Revelation 4 where he was told, John was, come up here and I will show you what must take place. I will give you perspective. So let us receive yet more heavenly perspective that it might empower us to kill sin. I want to read my text with you yet again as Matt has read, but it would be good for me as I would engage the text once again to reorient my heart as I'm imploring you. Please come with me through this text. Could we walk through it then by way of reading once again, um, beginning, my turn, beginning in verse 4 is where we're at because we completed 1 through 3 last week. For those of you who were with us, let's begin this week at verse 4. Around the throne were 24 thrones. Okay, again, our hearts are orienting to this text. Around the throne were 24 thrones. Seated on the thrones were 24 elders. They were clothed in white garments with golden crowns upon their heads. From this throne came flashes of lightning. Again, uh, we have just sang this, didn't we? Uh, flashes of lightning, peals of thunder. So we see what's in the biblical text. From the throne came flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder. And before this throne, there was burning seven torches of fire. See? which are the seven spirits of God. Before the throne, there was, as it were, a sea of glass. It was like crystal. Around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures, full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature like an ox, or excuse me, like a lion. Second creature like an ox. The third, like a face of a man. The fourth, like an eagle in flight. The four living creatures. Each of them with six wings. They are full of eyes all around and within. Day and night. This, this, this next here is a double, triple, quadruple underlined situation in your text. They never cease. To say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. Whenever this happens... Whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated upon the throne, who lives, look at his, his, his as we have sang this morning, who, blessed, who is eternal. He lives forever and ever. The 24 elders, they fall down. Immediately, just when this happens, they fall down before him who is seated on the throne. And they worship him, once again, because he, his identity, he lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy are you, O Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you have created everything. By your will it is that they even exist and were created. The first portion this morning that I want us to see together is last week we looked at the king in this context as who he is as we see him reflecting purity and holiness majesty through light. And we ended our text last week with seeing that what is the response of the saint to this? It is indeed, as we'll see, as it climaxes or crescendos at the end of this chapter, it's a response of worship. Because immediately perspective is given in God, 
God is light, and in him, as we have beheld him, there is no darkness at all. My response biblically is to fall before him and admit my unholiness and receive his holiness. This is the response of a God who is apart from darkness at all. So we looked at the king this morning. I want to look at the king's court. That's the second portion of our text this morning, beginning at verse 4. And the first thing we see about the king's court is that it's an expression of his royalty. As you saw there in uh, verse 3, he was seated upon a throne. There he had an appearance of purity, uh, majesty, radiance of glory, So it is certainly in his king court as an expression of his royalty where he sits enthroned. But as we progress through the text here, it is not only that he sits upon a throne that indicates his royalty. But as we progress through the text, we'll see that we are given here an expression of the breadth over which he rules. This is going to give perspective, I think, to to each of us and, and empower us in our lives right now. We see him high and lifted up is the first portion. Now what we're going to be able to see is over how much does he indeed reign. Come up here and I will show you. I will give you perspective about all of the happenings of earth. They originate from the throne room of God. He is high and lifted up. He sits enthroned above the heavens. He does as it is as all that he pleases. And this is the God who is light and in him there is no darkness. And then Now we're going to see, over how much does he reign? There are two features here over how much indicate to us, display to us, over how much he actually rules and reigns. The exhaustiveness of his kingdom is expressed in two portions here in your text. If you look with me at the exhaustiveness of God's rule. And remember, saint, as you're giving your heart to this text, remember, you're a part of this twofold makeup. Okay, what we're doing is we're not, we're, not, we're not studying the glory of God as out there and then us over here as we study it. We are in it under his authority we're a part of what we're seeing so we wouldn't say he is majestic and glorious he rules and he reigns he is sovereign over everyone as a point of looking and gazing but that we would look and gaze and receive that means me too that means if he's Indeed, the ruler of all. I'm a part of that. And it very pointedly asks us, are we? Are we obediently living under his rule? Are we allowing his lordship and his kingship to dominate and influence all of our activities and decisions? Is he the king theologically in our mind, but not the lord over our family? Is he the king of all the earth and over all that he has created, but not my wallet? I love this idea, but I don't submit to it. May that not be where we are. And if it is, may we see it in the text, not as something sterile to be studied, but something to be received. 
this is the intention of the text as we look at the expanse over which he rules. The two portions, as I have said to you as we begin to develop them, is the two portions over which he rules is that of one you can mark in your mind or in your text or in your notes is there. He rules over who in the first portion of verse 4? But he rules over the elders. Who is there in the king's court? There are the elders. There are 24 of them. The second portion over which his kingdom rules and reigns. This portion of the text that indicates just the exhaustiveness of his rule. How far indeed does the kingdom of our God reach? Is over the four living creatures. We're going to see together what that means. We say he rules over these four living creatures. He rules over these 24 elders. When we put it together, what does it teach us about the expanse and exhaustiveness of a sovereignty? Just how big is the kingdom of our God who reigns? By way of introduction to these realms of his rule, I would share with you his special creation is division number one. That is the comment of the 24 elders are a symbol of his elect, those of his people. Two divisions of creation here over which our God rules. We will see them at the end as they will reflect this in their praise. They give him holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. Worthy are you. Why? What is the grounds of his exaltation? Why is he worthy above everything else? Because he created everything that exists. And they know that. (laughs) For your will, we even are here and were created for you. Worthy are you. And quite straightforward, we can drop out of being in the spirit with John and outside of the glories of a heavenly vision. And right now, is that immediately applicable? Is this your hearts and life's response? Is this the dwelling place before God for you? And when you begin to walk through your day, is it in submission to him? Because remembering with all stewardship of your life, for your will I was created. For you I exist. How dare I sin against you so boldly as to take my life into my own hands and plot my own existence. For I was created because of you, and for you I exist. Might I purify my tongue and speech? For I exist for your glory. This is immediately instructive as we look at the realm and the exhaustiveness of our God's creation. His special creation, his redeeming creation, is that over his 24 elders who are symbolically his elect. The second realm of his creation, and again, as I briefly identify these pieces at the, for, at the, at the first portion, we'll begin to take each of them and develop them as we'll see them through the sermon. But the first portion is just to say, what is the exhaustiveness of the kingdom of God? But over these two full divisions, one, 
over his people. That is the special creation or his elect symbolized in these 24 elders gathered around his throne. The second portion is his not special creation, his redeeming creation, but his general creation that is represented in the four living creatures as they stand symbol of all animate life. And we'll get to that where the, uh, where the prophets rejoice. Call forth all creation. Exalt your God and give him glory. And that is exactly what they do at the end of Revelation 4. They rejoice and give him glory because they were created by him and unto him and for him. And so too will be your existence as a saint for that is why you were created, to bring him glory, to worship him and adore him, lay your life down before him. So the 24 elders, every time they hear that, that's what they do. They fall down before his throne. Do you rejoice at that picture, saint? To think that that was why you were created and indeed why you exist. Does it have reference to your life right now? When you assess that about your own life and the way you're prioritizing time, finances, resources, abilities, and skills, many of us with children, is that how, as our children will grow, is that how they're assessing mom and dad? in the priority of the home. That it's clear that dad is under the authority of a higher king. Dad is taught and instructed and is living out that he has been created for the glory of another. And he speaks that language to me. And he lives that language in front of me. Is that now, as we anticipate what's yet to come? The court of the great king, as we will look here, reveals that God is indeed the creation, the king over all creation, including very obviously, yet so easily neglected, us. Look with me at the exhaustiveness of his praise. If you will turn with me in your Old Testament scriptures, just briefly, I want to read for you a glorious text that pieces this together for us. Is Isaiah the prophet in the 42nd chapter of Isaiah. I didn't write the, uh, pa- the page number down for those using the Bibles there in the pew. I'm sorry for that. It is um, Isaiah There in the Old Testament, chapter 42, as we will look, I want to read for you this glorious picture of the saints gathered around the throne. The the call, as we see in heaven, the saints gathered, these animate creatures gathered, the exhaustiveness of God's creation, and recognized that this was a cry of the prophets. As we look at Isaiah 42, I will begin reading with you in this glorious picture of verse, beginning in verse 10. Sing to the Lord a new song. 
is praise from the end of the earth. Look at, look at the, ex, the expanse, the exhaustiveness of the call for praise. You who go down to the sea and all that fills it, the coastlands and their inhabitants, let the desert and its cities lift up their voices, the villages of Kedar inhabitants, inhabits, let the inhabitants of Selah sing for joy, let them shout from the top of the mountains. You see, all the way from the depths of the sea and all that fills it, now we have come all the way to the mountains. Quite simply, let all that fills the earth, let them give glory to the Lord and declare his praise in the coastlands. As you look there briefly at just this perspective of all that is in the sea that fills it, it's teeming with life. And all in between, across the coastlands to the mountains, let all of creation sing praise and glory to God. And we'll see that fulfilled once again as we see it in the heavenly vision of John here in the end of chapter 14. Quite simply as we begin, God reigns over all. I'd like now to look at each of these elements, the elders and animals individually, as we can see them come back together and offer praise to their God. The first portion of the elders there is you will begin to identify who are the elders and what's taking place in the courtroom of the king. Remember, he is seated upon the throne. There's a courtroom before him. And in his council chamber, this courtroom, there are these Elders, there are two things I want to notice, note to you about the elders, as I trust it will be indeed instructive to you, is number one, their identity. Who are they as best as we can determine? Secondly, their imagery. What do they stand for? Their identity is 24 members of elders. They are portrayed as counselors to the great king here in his heavenly court. Unless we need to be balanced here as we try to tackle the imagery, yet we would all confess, as we have sang already this morning, there is none besides me. There is none around me. There is none who offer something to me that it ought be repaid back to them. This is not the situation of what we have here in heaven is he is somehow indebted to their wise counsel. Yet at the same time, we do recognize there is some sense of counsel chamber being spoken of here as we recognize these elders are yet sat upon 24 thrones in the midst of the throne room. There's a sense about them in which they are a, 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 a picture, a symbol of counsel being offered in the council chamber of the king. They serve him. That is, they are not offering, once again, telling him how he ought to implement his will into the earth or who it is he ought to punish and who it is he ought to bring down and rise up. This is God alone, whom we have already seen. He appears as light. It is he alone who speaks forth a word that never returns void to him. So it is, we recognize yet there is a presence of 24 men, 24 symbolic men. What are they? They are most likely angelic beings whose number is 24. And where does the number 24 come from? Not the Jack Bauer television program, if that's a little bit old. I was into that in seminary. That was a while ago. Days off, watched several hours of 24. <laughs> I remember one time 
uh, this is digressing perhaps, but I, I remember one time as we were in seminary together, uh, Dan and I, Pastor Dan and I, um, we had gotten a day off for who knows what it was, and uh, we, uh, Adrienne, my wife, was hard at work, as she always was, and uh, I didn't take the time to do due diligence and get ahead. I took the day, and I began very early in the morning with Pastor Dan, blowing it off and watching several hours of 24 in a row, bagels from Panera, sat on my couch and watched several hours of 24. I don't know if we were blowing off seminary steam or what it indeed was exactly, but then my VCR died in the middle of it, or I had a DVD-VCR combo, whatever it was, it died in the middle of it, and we quickly ran to Best Buy, purchased yet another one, <laughs> and engaged in several more very important hours. So for me, when I look at 24, I see the clock. Deet, deet, deet and Jack Bauer saving the world. But as we look here, that is certainly not what John is seeing as a Jack Bauer individual. Rather, he is seeing that these 24 members are gathered in the throne room of the great king, symbolizing counsel. Where is 24 coming from then? As I could best offer to you, I think there are some indicators from the text. They are from the Old Testament and the New Testament. It is the 12 tribes of Israel, the elders of Israel from the 12 tribes that would make the first portion of 12 as we look at the glory of God, the exhaustiveness of his kingdom, certainly incorporating all of biblical history, ruling over those who are gathered before him from the Old Covenant and indeed those who are gathered before his throne out of the New Covenant. So we have the 12 tribes or elders of the tribes of Israel gathered next to the 12 foundations of the church, the apostles. As we look at these set apart groupings throughout redemptive history, we would see that this is indeed a representation of Old Testament and New Testament saints combined before the throne of our God. These angels worship and adore him, standing before him royally. If we were to step back and receive the whole picture, step out of the pieces and receive the picture, the elders are best understood as heavenly representatives, symbolizing the entire people of God gathered around the throne. This is what John sees people of God, worshiping and adoring God. Is this beginning, are you going with me in your heart here into the text? If this is what he sees, this is who they are, are you rejoicing on when that day beholds you? gathered around his throne, worshiping him forever. This is what he sees. Old and New Testament saints gathered, never ceasing to say, always worshiping and adoring the king of all creation. But not only is their identity important, like who they are and what is this number 24 as we could somehow, as a jigsaw puzzle, peel it apart and then piece it back together. But what we receive, come in and out. 
that it is the most staggering is their imagery. What is their imagery that would instruct the church of the first seven letters at the beginning of our book this morning? But it was that John's vision emboldens the church with regard to the promises that God has made to them in the vivid picture of what he is showing them. Look with me in the text of what he sees these saints looking like. There was 24 elders, saints of God. They are clothed in white garments. They have golden crowns on their heads. Now, if I could reach you yet again on a comment of context, as we looked at, we already preached through the first seven letters to the churches. And they were embattled, suffering persecution. They were suffering at the hands of others for their faith in Christ. And there was a word to them, keep going, keep going, keep going. And so we spoke of our own lives and community together about the need to keep our eyes fixed on Christ and keep going by his grace. And you remember there was a promise to each one, to he who overcomes, I give this. To he who overcomes, he will have an inheritance like this. So John sees these ones now in the council chamber of the Lord, worshiping him and adoring him. And it makes to that suffering church, maybe to you this morning yet again, strength of comment here about the reality of God's promises coming true to you. What is it that their image communicates? White robes and royal crowns. To the church who is suffering and is looking upon this vision, I quote for you chapter 3, verse 5. They have already heard in the onslaught of difficulty, the one who conquers will be, what? Clothed in white garments. I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. So the church who is struggling heard that promise once. Now, in John's vision, they're seeing it. This will be our reward. It's already taking place. It's as good as done. Let us overcome. That's the call to the church. Hear this call. And sometimes we just don't hear it. Sometimes we're faint of heart in receiving it. You ever had someone say to you a wise word that you just, it was premature for you to be able to receive it? Somewhere down the line later on, it just struck you and made sense, laid hold of you in a totally different way. It can be sometimes an issue of timing. So too, the church has already heard. Keep going. If you overcome, you'll be clothed in white garments. You'll worship with my holy angels before my Father. And so maybe they just yet heard it and received it, but still needed to see it and sense it. And this is what John delivers to them. You're there worshiping. What he said is true. I saw it with my own eyes. 
saints gathered around his throne, wearing white robes, blood-washed linens, bearing crowns upon their head. I know it's hard, but keep going. This is the vision that John sees. Here yet again we heard about their white robes that is promised to the church. Yet again he goes a step further in indicating the promise of crowns. So it is, as I cite for you from chapter 3, yet again verse 21, Jesus said to the churches, to Redeemer, the one who overcomes, the one who conquers, I will grant to sit with me. Where are they? On my throne. John saw it. As I also conquered, and I sat down with my father on his throne. Here we are, chapter 4. The presence of the throne room of the glory of God. And John beholds saints there with white gowns as spoken, bearing crowns as Can that charge you, brother and sister? Can that empower a thought of delayed gratification? That we wouldn't reach for the fruits of Babylon so fast, so easy, give ourselves over, but by faith, Labor for the day that is yet dawned, that it will be better than what Babylon is offering you in her forbidden cup. We were reading a book this week, a comment on the disciplines of godliness for saints. And the author makes comment on a series of, of, of men who he knew that made failures and, and men of family who walked away and mistakes that were committed. And his, his, his summary was striking. He said, I, I, if we could go back to those men or those women and we could say, when you stray from the word of God and you commit what is right in front of you, easily accessible to you, greatly tempting to you, and you lay hold of it and you commit that sin, as James says, you're carried away by your very own lust and sin is conceived. If you knew all that would have befallen you, would you go back and make the same decision? Would you purpose in your heart to leave the word of God, to leave the instruction of God if now looking at the consequence of your sin? What a powerful word. That we wouldn't forsake the word of God for sin that so easily entangles and seems to be so satisfying in a moment. Boy, we'd be moved by visions like this. The promises of God made real. White robes, royal crowns gathered before the throne of God forever in front of the one who lives forever. This is the call to the saint to conquer. Yet as sweet as these promises are, it emboldens the church also to the severity of the warning 
It's not just a motivational speech. It's a word of battle. Fight with all your might. Don't think, well, it would be, it would be kind of nice to delay gratification, but it's really not that big of a deal. I, I hear what you're saying about this glorious heavenly vision, but you know what? I live here and now kind of, and, and, and you know, it's, it's not realistic for me. There is yet a word of severity to that. Lest we develop that kind of ethic. It would be nice to wait, but, you know, he does not know. The word is this way. They also see the warning of God, quote, chapter 3, verse 11, hold fast to what you have so that no one may seize your crown. Are you holding fast? That is, John is hopefully empowering you this morning, I trust, by the power of the Spirit as he was speaking to the first century church who was really embattled in this or that, the way of death and temptation or the way of life and overcoming. And he's saying, hold fast to what you have lest your crown be seized. I can tell you, you're there, gathered before the throne. You will don the white robe of Christ and be seated with him in his throne room. You will have royalty upon your head as anointed from him overcome lest someone take your crown you don't persevere this is the throne room of our God for the people of God if we were to look upon these elders in a moment what ought to we reflect as they reflect indeed the God in whom they serve they reflect purity as white robes indicate forgiveness and purity devotion to him as they sit before him and serve him day and night they reflect him do you see that here he is here are the saints gathered they reflect him purity devotion Service to Him forever. We are to reflect them. Purity. Now. Pornography. Let it be put away from you. The saints aren't marked by that. They're marked by white robes, blood-washed linens, royalty of their creator. They're a member of his kingdom. Then put that which doesn't belong away from you. This is who they are. This is who he sees. And this is who he reports to you. This is what we're going to do forever. Saints gathered in white purity and royalty of our Creator, worshiping, devoting, serving Him forever. Turn with me, if you would, to hear this yet again from James. Go back just a little portion from the book of Revelation and hear it very crystal clear from James, who is to speak to you in a word. What does this heavenly vision mean to me right now? What do I do with this glory of God that I'm beholding in this text? That I would hate sin and love purity. If you're in James chapter 1, beginning in verse 22, this is exactly what we are to do this morning, brothers. Sisters, I saw a heavenly vision from John. What ought I do with it? James says, 
be a doer of the word. Don't sit, Redeemer. Don't sit, Adam, under the authority of Scripture and be a hearer only. You're not doing anything, but what does James tell us? You're deceiving yourself. Purity can wait. Devotion and service is good, but it can wait. You're deceiving yourself. If anyone is a hearer of the word, and you're not a doer, he's like a man who looks intently at his natural face in the mirror. For he looks at himself and he goes away. They gather with the saints. They hear the vision. They, they see the word. They taste it in their mouth. And at once they forget what it was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres or overcomes, as Jesus says, he conquers by not being a hearer who forgets, but he is a doer who then acts. He, this one, who hears and does will be blessed in all of his doing. As we look at the imagery that's being created for us out of this heavenly vision of the saints who are gathered around the throne, what is the word of instruction? They look pure, devoted, and full of service, so too would the saints hear it and identify today with being doers, those who serve God and His kingdom, those who reflect His purity today. This is the call. Let us be doers. Next in the text, as we move beyond the saints, immediately we see yet again the glory of the Trinity. As you look, as we sang this morning, blessed Trinity, God in three persons, blessed Trinity. This wonderful book is filled with the picture of your God as triune, Father, Son, and Spirit. And so too we have it in this heavenly vision. The Son of Man, that is Christ, beckons John come in verse uh, 2, 1 or 2 there. Then you see God the Father seated upon his throne and you see the power of the Spirit yet again showing up in verse 5. From the throne came flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. We have already covered this portion a little bit in chapter 1, but by way of review, these seven spirits are also better understood as a sevenfold spirit, symbolizing the fullness of the Spirit's presence before the Father. We saw that from, we already done, we are already performed that digging to piece that together. So I just continue with you as a listener, as the sevenfold power of the Spirit in the presence of the Father. We see here yet again the Father, Son, and Spirit in perfect harmony before the throne. I was thinking of this in my text as I was meditating upon the power of the Spirit already appearing twice in this text. And I was thinking of you and myself in the role of the Spirit in our lives. 
Remember, this is the mystery of the gospel that Christ dwells in you, the hope of your glory. I was thinking about this in time. How are we not just rejoicing over the idea, but how are we seeing it in our lives? I thought to encourage you with the thought of this church, these churches seeing this vision on battling temptation yet again. Because it's appearing in light of the purity and devotion of these elders, of the saints gathered around his throne. And here's the power of the Spirit mentioned right after. The power of the Spirit. And I thought to each of us, do we consider that power enabling and empowering us to say no to sin and yes to righteousness? Or do we feel like it's a hopeless battle of legalism? Might we meditate, indeed pray, for the power of the person of the Spirit to help and aid in our fighting against sin? It's not just a call. Go be pure, like the elders. That's who you are. Go be pure. But might we be empowered to be pure? by the presence of the Spirit lived within. Think of Christ in whom you trust. Enabled to overcome temptation on your behalf to redeem you out from your Egypt. It was the same Spirit of God enabling Christ to complete redemption of you, that you might call upon his name and be saved, that now dwells in you, enabling you likewise to be pure in heart, waging war against the flesh. This is Paul's language, if you wish to look, in Romans chapter 6. By the Spirit put to death the deeds of the body. Are we saints who rely upon the Spirit? Do we pray that God would empower by the presence of the Spirit as we see his beauty, indeed his glory, in the throne room of our King? Let us meditate there and indeed pray for the power of the Spirit in overcoming sin and temptation. Spreading from the throne is the next piece of imagery if we could gather here together to see the beauty of our God in the royal courts is the imagery of a sea of glass like crystal. The sea here is identified by Moses and Aaron and the elders of Israel at Sinai as, quote, a pavement. That is, where they saw him, there was a pavement of sapphire as clear as the sky itself. This is located in Scripture in Exodus 24, 10. Likewise, Ezekiel, who said it was like the awesome gleam of crystal. Ezekiel 1, verse 22 through 26. It reappears in the book of Revelation as we will continue to labor and go forward. It will reappear in the new Jerusalem where you are going it reappears in the new Jerusalem where the saints are standing beside it celebrating the victory of God and of the Lamb. 
you will be gathered there. What is its imagery? But that it would reflect indeed the tranquil sovereignty of the King of Kings. It was like a sheet of sapphire. It was like a sea of glass, like crystal, emanating from the throne of the King. Quite a contrast to the turmoil of earth is the sweet, tranquil sovereignty of God. In the midst of the royal court, John sees the second portion of our understanding of created order, the four living creatures. I want to notice two portions here, their identity and their imagery as we come to complete the time of looking upon the 24 elders, indeed the symbol of the saints, old and new, that we persevere in purity and devotion for that great day. Their identity of the four living creatures is that they are like the elders, most likely angels, who much like the elders also serve our God as representatives, symbolizing all animate creation. That is all of God's creation over which he rules and reigns. There is not one bit of creation that God did not create, that he did not author, over which he does not rule, or of which exists to do anything other than ultimately offer glory, honor, and praise to him who created them. This is not just that he is royal, but that the expanse of his rule is utterly exhausted. Yet again, I ask you, how dare we then step outside in our own mind of that authority? Claim, even if we don't verbalize it, a heart of autonomy. I do my own thing. Yet we might not say it with the mouth and dare almost to hide it in the heart, but we evidence it in the way that we live. We are our own king. Yet we rejoice over a text like this that says otherwise. Let our hearts be humbled. Let us rejoice over the exhaustness of our God and his kingdom, receiving his rule and living for his glory. This is the call of the text of the heavenly vision. As their identity is important as we could understand it as representatives, indeed symbols of all animate creation is under the authority of our God. It is their imagery that is perhaps most important. Their identity, yet their imagery. They are full. If you look there in verse 8, I'll begin there, I guess, at the beginning portion of verse 6 and read to verse 8. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures. They have full of eyes in front and behind 
He goes on to further describe the first like a lion, the second like an ox, the third like that of a face of a man, the fourth like an eagle in flight, the four living creatures, each of them with six wings. They are full of eyes, as he repeats, all around and within. What is this imagery of the animate creation? But once again, just like that of the elders, who are marked by the purity and royalty of the God they serve, these angels are likewise marked by the exhaustive wisdom of God. As we will see, they will come to implement his judgments and serve him in his royal court. What is the comment of eyes around and behind, all through and throughout? Later we will see it is the Lamb who has seven eyes. What is this imagery but the imagery of exhaustive wisdom of the one they worship? Yet, as we would receive the imagery of this book, might we step back out if we get too narrow? Let us step back and receive the power. It is their identity, their imagery, yet it is finally as it would move you as saints in a moment most important in this text. From a, in this moment is the function that they have. They never cease to worship God as holy. It is their function that is most instructive to the soul in this very moment. Not deciphering out each and every piece and beginning to strategize and beginning to overread and overemphasize that which is not of the greatest import, that we don't have that greatest amount of access to. Let us speculate, 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 speculate. Draw back and see their function. It is verse 8. With their full of eyes all around and within, Day and night, they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the elders, their function, they likewise fall down. They worship. How is this instructing your heart, saint? In your identity of the kingdom of God as a citizen of the great kingdom, they fall down before him who is seated on the throne and they worship him, him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before him. Do you see? They receive it. They have this honor, this royalty. They submit it unto him who is alone worthy, saying indeed that, Worthy are you, O Lord God. You are the one who ought to receive glory and honor and power. The grounds of your glory from that which you have created is that you created it. You created everything. And by your will, they existed and were created. Here at the end of the text, what is made most clear? 
is that God's relationship to all that he has created is one of holy transcendence. He is supreme over all. He alone is absolutely great. He alone is worthy of endless praise. Is this instructive to you in this moment when we came in grumbling? In the pride of spirit that we ought to be more recognized, in the impatience of daily interruption. Is it that we are most important living in that manner, missing the power of God's majesty, who alone is worthy and who alone is great? How does this heavenly vision, as I conclude with you from this text this morning, how is it that I would like to leave this text with you for the vision of God's majesty over all that he has created and the endless praise that you will offer to him as you gather around his throne forever? I trust that you are laboring to live that today. Endless praise, a mouth that is quick to thank, a heart that is ready to rejoice over God. Might this final promise motivate you? One author concludes this way. The way to fight sin is to feed faith. And how is it that I'll do it? Feed my faith with what? He concludes with the precious and magnificent promise that the pure in heart will see. Face to face, the all-satisfying glory of God. How is it that I will take away? How will I be so shaped? What should I, how then should I live? marked by purity of the saints, motivated for what you just saw, you will see him face to face who will satisfy you forever. Let it help us fight sin. Let's pray. My God, I do pray that you would empower us through this text, your church, as I have prayed, as we have labored in your holy text Together, I pray, O oh God, that you would take this text and you would, you would you'd burn it upon the heart of your saints that they have beheld their God, that they have seen you high and lifted up, that indeed that is the cure. Let it not be an unknown cure among us that somehow we need something other than your glory and the expanse and the exhaustedness of you who reign forever and ever, your eternality, that indeed you existed forever and will forever continue. 
Let that be a word to the saint to say, Worthy is my God. And let me, by the Spirit of my God, kill sin before it kills me. As we long for the day of your glory, where we will see face to face the God of all glory. Hallelujah, what a Savior. We praise you. Transform us by your grace. Empower us with your spirit. And in Christ's name I pray. Amen.